Romans chapter 8, after, uh, after a brief break, resuming our study of those final verses, now verses 35 through 37, Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 37. hear God's word. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you once more that you have given us the gift of your word, and we ask you that now through the preaching you might shine light upon that word by which it would become uh, a powerful experience, a powerful conviction of these very things in our heart, the very workings of faith in our heart through the Holy Spirit, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Having dealt with the series of objections that uh, Paul levels against, well, in some sense, there's a question, what doctrine is he questioning or what doctrine is he uh, leveling objections to? It's difficult to say in some sense. Some say perseverance. I noticed that was uh, the section from which uh, that hymn was just sung, the section on perseverance in the hymnal. Uh, It could be Uh, The doctrine of election, the doctrine of justification. In one sense, all these things, or or even sonship, all these things are tied together. It's difficult to identify. Uh, Let us just be content to say that Paul is, at the end, leveling objections to all that he said. And he's asking whether in our own experience, our own faith in those truths can stand up to the objections that he raises. These are objections, as we've seen, that the devil brings These are objections that the world brings, but uh, perhaps most perplexing and most dangerously, these are objections that our own hearts bring against our faith in the gospel. He levels four objections under six questions. We've looked at uh, five of the questions in the first four verses, and then in verse uh, 35, we have the sixth Question. Questions uh, we've seen already are, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And so on. All of these he's answered in his own way. And, and the last question, bringing with it the last objection is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, these are two questions, but in essence, one. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? He is presenting, once again, in the realm of our own experience, our own experience of grace, the grace of justification, the, the, the grace of assurance and of perseverance and so on. He is presenting the final hurdle, the final obstacle, the final challenge, and that is that of trials, the trials that we face in the world. Uh, Haldane, uh, which I have right here, Robert Haldane in his great commentary says that Uh, The prior questions dealt with battles within and the last deals with battles without. That might be a helpful way of looking at it. Uh, But however you look at it, it's clear that he's talking about trials. And the question or the objection is in essence this. Shall trials of various kinds, 
even of the worst kinds, be able to separate us from the love of Christ. In other words, is there anything in all the world that can separate you from the very love I, Paul, and now I, uh, your minister, have been asserting to you? Is there anything that can separate you? Is there anything, we could change the phrasing a little bit and say, is there anything that can cause his love to fail? Well, here let us see in the first place, the central thought becomes that of love. Romans chapter 8, if we look at it as a single chapter or as the conclusion of one great section, chapters 5 through 8, or even of an extended doctrinal section, chapters 1 through 8, it all ends with a consideration of the love of God. Whereas in the prior verses, verses 31 through 34, the judicial aspect was more prominent. That of God being for us, verse 31, his favor being granted in our justification. That of Christ's death as our penal substitute, verses 32 and 34, justification itself in verse 33. But here, in verse 35, there is a transition to a new, more comprehensive theme, that of the love of God. And it isn't just in verse 35, that's the thought that he carries through to his triumphant conclusion. So in verse 37... In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And again, in verse 39. None of these things, he says, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is no question. But that the love of God is the concluding thought of chapter eight. So that for all that Paul has said about the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is unquestionably the central doctrine present in Romans chapters uh, chapters 1 through 8. Not only the doctrine of justification, but the believer's enjoyment of it. He chooses to end on a note of God's love for us. Is there any mystery here? He's done so already in chapter 5, verses 5 through 8. He begins his consideration uh, of having been justified by faith. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, verse 1, and goes on to speak uh, of the blessings that we enjoy as those who have been justified. And speaking this way causes the Apostle Paul to reflect upon what? The love of God in Christ. For when we were still without strength and do, well, well, actually, uh, Well, yes, I'll begin in verse 6. We could have begun in verse 5, but chapter 5, verse 6, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates what? His own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul is thinking deeply. He's thinking practically about the doctrine of justification by faith. And it is thoughts of this that makes him think in a very natural line of the love of God. What I'm saying is that that is the natural concluding point. And if thoughts of justification by faith do not cause you to think of the love of God in Christ, then you are thinking of it wrongly. You see, that is in itself a kind of practical test about your understanding of the doctrine. We're talking about God acting as a judge. 
And even as we do so, we are speaking of him, not in a cold judicial sense, but we are contemplating in the most profound sense the love of God in Christ Jesus, his son. The love of God in giving his son for us. So the flow of thought is natural. Moving from the judicial, uh, we could say, to the filial. We are beloved as sons. Paul said that as well in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. Because God's act of justifying his own enemies by the death of his son is the ultimate display. And it is the ultimate proof of his love for us. Indeed, did he not say so already in verse 30, 32? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You see, that's a statement of the love of God. He's already loved us in the greatest possible way. And if he's, if he, if he's loved us like this, could he ever fail to love us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, we're considering something judicial. The death of Jesus Christ in the flesh. What does it display for the believer to behold? The love of God. And never did the love of God appear so brightly to the believer as in the act of justifying him as a sinner and as an enemy. A further reason for stressing love here is that it brings into, some, uh, into view something grander than justification by faith. Justification by faith deals merely with the beginning of the Christian life. Those whom he called, he also justified. It speaks of a particular point in time, the instant in which the believer is transferred from wrath to grace. At that very moment, he is justified once and for all time. And there isn't anyone now who can charge uh, him or bring uh, condemnation against him. He's not, no longer under the law. He's under grace. But for as great as that doctrine is, as I say, it's just... It's just a moment in time. Now, everything that follows causes us to reflect back with wonder at that moment. And yet here, Paul is speaking of something uh, even grander, something greater, something more comprehensive than that. And that is the love of God. Bringing into view the full scope of salvation from its inception to its consummation or its completion at every stage of our salvation what is apparent or what appears to us is the love of God. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that in love he predestined us. Or in Romans chapter 8 verse 29 he says those whom he foreknew, which is virtually synonymous with saying those upon whom he set his love. Those whom he foreknew he also predestined and so on. To consider the scope of salvation is to consider the love of God formed in eternity, perfected in time and then uh, and then and then into all eternity. And the question which the Apostle Paul poses here is the final objection. Is shall anything be able to separate us from that? In other words, could that ever change? Could God set his love upon us in Christ from all eternity? Could God set his love upon us? At the cross of his own son. And then in justifying us. And then something come along and succeed in plucking us out of his hands so to speak. 
Could that ever change? Could, uh, could God ever cease to love us? Could the love of God ever fail? And yet, let me say one more thing about the love which is contemplated here, and that is that it is the love of Christ. You see, I've been speaking of the love of God. But Paul states it more narrowly. He states it as the love of Christ, verse 35, shall anything separate us from the love of Christ, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Clear reference to the Son as well. And there's good reasons for doing so, such as the fact that in verse 34, the apostle speaks of the love of the Son. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore, who also is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do you see how natural the the flow of thought is there? In contemplating the acts of Christ in his death and his resurrection and his session and intercession, what we are contemplating is a love which stretches, uh, at least in the scope of that verse, from his death to the present. And implying into all eternity for he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now when you contemplate that you ask the question. Shall anything be able. Even the worst things. To separate us from that love. The love of he who now intercedes for us in heaven. You see it's a very natural flow of thought. And besides to speak of his love for us. Is to speak of his relation to us. He is our elder brother to whom we will be conformed in eternity we've been predestined to be conformed unto him he's thrown in our lot his lot with us so to speak he's become one like us he is our great high priest he's our brother we his so that he is able hebrew says and so we find him in the season of prayer to sympathize with us in our weakness you see it's fitting to speak of the love of christ because It is the love of Christ that trials call into question. And and as that is questioned, Christ says to our hearts, as he says uh, to Paul, your sufferings are my sufferings. And why do you persecute me? To speak of the love of Christ is to speak of our great high priest who sympathizes with us and who has bound ourselves to him. It is fitting to speak here narrowly of the love of Christ rather than broadly as the love of God, though he'll do so in verse 39. Because speaking narrowly of the love of Christ fixes our thought upon the proper object, which is Christ, our great high priest, who not only died for us, but who also was raised and who is seated at the right hand of God and who even now makes intercession for us and thus is one whose heart is full of sympathy for the church. But the challenge to this is a second point, is whether anything in that relationship of Christ as our intercessor should be able to separate us from that love in time. Is there anything in this world that will arise and pull us apart? Shall tribulation? Or distress or peril or sword or nakedness or famine. You see, Paul is just throwing out a list. It isn't so important to consider the details of that list, though I think I may do so in a few moments. You could compose any list you like. You could think of the worst things that you've ever faced or that you might fear that you could face in this life. And then you could ask the question. Perhaps you have asked asked the question. 
What would happen then? What would become of my faith? What would become of my salvation? Would the glue that binds me to my Savior as a Christian be unglued by those things? Well, why would Paul ask the question at this point? You see, in one sense, it's utterly unnecessary. If we ought to be convinced of anything by now, it's the love of Christ. And yet, in another sense, it is the thing which, if we are not convinced of, we can never enjoy a single moment of peace and certainty and and assurance in this life. You see, it's the thing you've got to be convinced of. But the thing which, if you are convinced of, well, then Paul is saying you can face anything, anything at all. And so let us settle this thought in our hearts once for all, that Christ has loved us, that the love of Christ is something that ought never to be called into question, and that as he has ever loved us, even from all eternity, so he will always love us, or else we will ever be in doubts as to our salvation, tossed to and fro, especially when difficulties press in upon us. But as faith is ever assaulted by doubts, even in the best believers, we must deal with this objection as Paul does, especially as the very things Paul enumerates here have this tendency to make us doubt his love. They call it into question. You see, a trial comes along, a a very severe trial, and and, and the very thing that occurs to to the soul Or the thing that we begin to reflect upon is the love of God. Only not uh, so often in a beneficial way, but in a harmful way. The thought which we ask ourselves, and what is admittedly sheer unbelief, is whether Christ ever loved us, uh, ever really loved us at all. Or whether he loves us still, given what we may be suffering at any given time. Now admittedly, we are exploring the experience of the believer in the realm of theology, or uh, not of theology, The opposite, in the realm of psychology, in the realm of experience. Although I think that's a fitting way to speak of it because, well, even as I read uh, Gerhardus Voss in his description of Abraham's faith, faith, he speaks of the psychology of faith. Faith is a state of mind with respect to God, just as the absence of faith is a state of mind with respect to what we suffer, imagining these things are greater than God himself. And so we lose faith. Let us admit So much of the Christian life is lived in this realm, the realm of psychology. It's a battle for the mind. And in this realm, let us also admit, we're not always at our best, theologically speaking. That's why I say it's the opposite of theology. You you know, it's easy enough to sit there reading your sermons or your systematic theologies or or even your Bible and uh, and to be flourishing in faith, but in, in the battle and the arena of life where you're being tested and tried, well, then it isn't so easy. And we all know that. That's where Paul is addressing us. Not, a, not on the couch sipping your coffee, reading your Bible. But when you're being pressed upon and knocked down by the severest of trials. And what of your faith then? Well, as I say, it is in those moments that we're not at our best, uh, theologically speaking. Uh, this little letter to Dabney, we've, we've made an insert of it if you wanted. Uh, we also emailed it out by, by Vaughn. Uh, is, is very helpful in this regard. Just in this sense, he says, do you remember in the stress of your trial how faith comes? Just here is where Christians make a great mistake. 
And he, he says, in essence, they look inward instead of outward. But listen to what he says personally to Dabney, his friend. Even a great theological thinker is apt to make that mistake when he has come into the practical stress of this awful world as a common Christian. The best theologian uh, in the world may be driven to doubts and despairs when trials come upon him. He also says this at the end of the letter. That great theologian, after all, is just like any other one of God's children. And the simple gospel talked simply to him is just as essential to his comfort as it is to a milkmaid or to a plowboy. Consider such things as as are apt to make even the best believer droop into a sad state of unbelief. And you will admit that it is no small thing to withstand such things. Paul isn't talking about uh, just disappointment in this life, a desire crossed or withheld. He begins with tribulation, which is to speak of suffering comprehensively. From there, he speaks of distress as though to say, here is a man in Uh, in, In a situation from which he cannot discover a way out or persecution more narrowly as as the world aligning itself against the Christian, opposing the Christian from which he, he goes on to speak in particular forms of either tribulation, distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril or sword. Now, imagine just to take that last example. That you were to give your life for Christ, as many of these first men had done. The sword of the state was to fall upon your neck, so to speak. Now, the question you ask, and you see it isn't such an easy one to answer. What would happen of your faith then? And we ought to settle in our hearts even now, whether even that, whether the sword upon your neck, it may separate your head from your shoulders. But could it separate you from the love of Christ? That's the question. Even beyond this, there's what is said in uh, Psalm 44, verse 22, uh, quoted in verse 36. As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And so the challenge is put like this. Shall any of these things be able to separate us from the love of God, even as as it is written in your word? For your sake, we're being killed all the day long. The the challenge is stated as fully and frankly as can be. There is no attempt to minimize or obscure the reality of suffering. He even appeals to scripture to make his point that we are exposed as Christians to countless troubles because we belong to him. And the thought is not merely whether they have a tendency to call his love into question. They do. But whether these things actually succeed in separating us from his love. Along goes the Christian in his pilgrimage and suddenly he finds that one of these things has cut him off from the love of Christ. Whether uh, tribulation, peril, sword or whatever. Paul asks, is such a thing possible? Well, how is the, cha- how is the challenge to be faced is the third point. And I would give three answers first in terms of the question itself. Consider again the question and, and, and it's, it's, it's uh, beneficial to look at each of these questions, each of these six questions and just ponder the question. Because uh, in a sense, just to ask the question is to have your answer. We, we ought to notice the form in which he poses it. It's not a, a despairing or oblique way of, of posing the problem. It's a very hopeful. Shall. Let me see. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The obvious implied answer is no one. But look at what he's saying. Look at the terms that he uses. Uh, He's highlighting three things. The first is he who has loved us. In many ways, that's the great thing. That's, that's, That's what faith needs to be focused upon, as Vaughn told Daphne. Not upon itself, but upon he who has loved us. Jesus Christ, even the Son of God. Now, just think about him. Beyond that, his love. The love of Christ. A love which... Began in all eternity or eternity past and which was manifest at the cross and which continues to reveal itself even now. But third, he speaks of those who are loved. Who shall separate us? Who's he talking about? He's talking about those uh, for whom all, all things work for good. Those who were foreknown, those who were predestined and so on. Called, justified, glorified. He is Speaking not only of Christ but, and his disposition towards us, but our disposition towards him. We are standing in his grace, as Paul says at the beginning of Romans chapter 5. And it is as we consider these three things, again, Christ, his love, and our relation to him as those who are loved. That reveals the absurdity of the supposition that anything might separate us from Christ and his love. Once again, Paul reduces the objection that is posed to an utter absurdity. And we would do well to do the same. The question is not whether our love can withstand the tests. If that were the question, we might, uh, we might easily and wisely say, no, our love cannot withstand the tests that will be thrown at us. But the question is rather whether his love can withstand the tests. Understand the terms of the question And you will already have your answer. Second, there is the constant teaching of scripture about trials. That they are actually uh, beneficial to the believer. And that if anything, as the writer to the Hebrews says, and so constantly through scripture we see, they are tokens of his love. Though they don't always seem that way. And the reason that uh, the believer is exposed to, to greater trials and tribulations than the unbeliever is not because... One, uh, the believer is not loved and the unbeliever is loved, but rather the opposite is that he chastises those whom he loves. It's that he wishes to purify our faith so that the world might behold it as a token of his glory and his grace at work in us. And even beyond that, as the ultimate token of his love, it is so that we might be conformed to the image of his son, first in his sufferings, then in his glory. Romans chapter 8. Verse 17. So you have to keep the prior teaching in mind. But by far the greatest answer to the question is found in what he says in verse 37, where he says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. All these things are the things listed in verses in verse 35, tribulation, distress, persecution, and so on. In all these things, we are more than conquerors first. We'll divide the answer in two. More than conquerors. It's fascinating. Now, we just, we just uh, sung that together. It was a wonderful hymn. I don't know if we've ever sung it uh, before, but I was thankful to sing that because I, I just thought, what a fitting prelude to the sermon. Do you notice how strongly Paul puts it? You see, he doesn't just say, and we might, we might think this would be enough, but... This is not the posture that Paul describes. 
merely that we are able to stand up to such things. We are able as Christians to withstand the severest of trials. But he says something far beyond that. He says in describing the disposition of the Christian who has been justified by faith, that he, uh, his position is one of overwhelming victory. Nothing less than that. Overwhelming victory. In fact, it would have been enough for him to say that we are conquerors in all these things. But he says we're more than conquerors as though to say, you know, there's really no way to describe this. There's no parallel in all the world and in all of history that compares to the position. And the and the overwhelming victory that the Christian enjoys, unless we were to compare him to Christ and his victory over death and the resurrection. What a grand view of the Christian life, even as he is afflicted in the worst possible ways. He's overwhelmingly conqueror. This is a kind of blessed irony in God's providence. That those who persecute us imagine you were to be killed for Christ. The question is, who's the victor? Well, Paul says that the one who wins the battle is not the persecutor. It's the persecuted. It is not they who conquer we, but we them. And let the believer walk by faith and he will see this too. Just as he'll see it at the cross where Christ is killed. Beyond that, in describing the believer's disposition in this world, Paul is making us, that is every one of you, Everyone who has named the name of Christ as Savior and Lord and who has obeyed the summons of Jesus Christ when he said unto you, follow me. This makes you warriors and combatants. Nothing less than that. He has called you to fight. He has called you to victory. Even as he's called you into the arena of salvation. Do you notice the mentality of the Christian is never that of the victim? Never allow yourself to give in to that kind of thinking, that kind of despair. The Christian is always a victor. He's not merely fighting, but he's winning. He faces trials as he faces trials. He not merely endures them, but he overwhelmingly conquers them in all these things. In anything. The Christian is always winning overwhelmingly. How so? Through him who loved us. That's the second point. And we are brought back to the thought of verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Not our love for Christ, but his love for us. How do we conquer? How do we overcome? Not of ourselves, but of him. Not our own love, but his love. The very love which trials call into question. Or seem to separate us from. By that love we conquer all these things. In other words, Paul is saying... Far from separating us from his love, as though it were his love that were conquered by these things. His love manifest on the cross has already conquered every foe for us. It's conquered the persecutor's sword or whatever. The reality is different than we imagine. And the one who has faith will see it. What Paul holds forth is the believer's confidence is not the possibility of conquest, but the reality of it. For Jesus Christ has already fought and he has won and we are in him. He is speaking of the victory which has been won at the cross and at the resurrection, verse 34, and of which the believer is now able to share. In this world you'll have tribulation, Jesus says, but take heart for I have overcome the world. 
It's his victory. But that same love, which was manifest at the cross and the resurrection, and which the believer might always contemplate, also appears in the midst of the very trials which seem to vanquish it. So that his love appears as a conquering love at the cross and the resurrection and so on. But it also appears in the midst of trials. Uh, what I'm saying is there's an objective element to it. There's a truth simply to be believed and contemplated and laid hold of. That every trial that can possibly come upon you has already been conquered by his love. But there is also a subjective experience of that in the midst of sufferings. For it is in the midst of tribulation that his love displayed on the cross appears to us anew, even as Paul says in Romans chapter 5 and verse 3. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out. In our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Do you notice again the sequence of thought from tribulation to love? And what Paul is saying is that in the midst of what you suffer, you're glorying in it because you're able to experience even then the love of God, the love of Christ. You're able to, to discover experimentally the truth of what Jesus says. He doesn't just say, in this world you will have tribulations, but I have overcome it. He says, take heart. Here's the believer in the midst of tribulations taking heart. He's actually experiencing the victory. He's conquering by faith. There's a very similar uh, line of thought here uh, to what was said in the prior sermon about how faith comes and becomes assurance. If trials, however severe, make you question his love, it's because you're trying to measure his love by what you suffer. You have the wrong measure. Rather than making his person the measure of his love. Let his love appear by a consideration of his person, not what you suffer. Through him who loved us. That's how we conquer. And compare what you suffer to him. Who overcomes. That's not only how faith comes. But how his love appears to the soul. Faith acts upon him. It deals with him. As he who died. Yes rather. Who was raised and so on. Verse 34. It's as though Paul is saying when he says. We are more than conquerors through him. Who loved us. Let your faith rest and receive upon him alone. For salvation. Even at such times as trials weigh you down. Remember him who said, I have overcome the world. Set your mind not so much on these things, but on him who overcomes the world. Romans chapter 8 verses 5 and 6. Or I could put it like this. Faith considers not the obstacles nor the enemies, but he who is the victor. And this is the faith which overcomes the world, as John says. And so faith deals with Christ and he makes us more than conquerors. Martin Lloyd-Jones. There's a kind of master principle here of the Christian life in our own experience and growth and grace. And that is, as Jesus says in, in John chapter 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Everything. If, if you were to go back and, and try to summarize the great principle in Romans, you would, you would see that everything that comes to the believer is 
through him, through Jesus Christ, not of ourselves, but through him. With him, as Paul says in Philippians four of myself, I can do nothing, but with him, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can face all I can conquer all I can smile in the face of the severest of trials. Again, I can glory in tribulation. Because just then the love of God is being shed abroad in my heart. Does it seem strange to you that Paul puts it that way? That the believer who's been justified by faith and who knows it is glorying in tribulation. Or, this is the most pointed question of all, or is it a familiar feeling? Do you know what he's talking about? Do you know what it is to glory in the midst of trials? It is, I would say, without hesitation, the experience of all who know Christ. All who have set their faith upon him. All who know what it is to follow him. As he who was raised and is reigning. Those who have looked to him in times of trial and found from him grace to help in time of need. In other words, it's a question of faith or it's a question of prayer. And where do you go when trials press upon you? Do you go to him? Do you rely on his strength? Or are you still relying on yourself? Well, when this occurs... When you have found in him a gracious, loving, conquering savior. There is nothing left in all the world to make us doubt him. But you see, you've got to experience it. You've got to know it for yourself. His love appearing to the soul brightly in the sorest trials is forever fixed in the heart as the eternal fountain of our salvation from which nothing can ever separate us. And we will enjoy invincible assurance. I ask you, have you found him thus? Or is your faith in him still untried, untested? So many Christians never really learn what it is to have faith in Christ. Not in a practical, experimental sense. Or being tried. The last thing ever learned is the love of Christ. But supposing we have. Supposing his love has been shed abroad in our hearts, even in the midst of trials, so that we are convinced of it utterly and completely. And we could ask the question, not as though to doubt it, but as though to state it confidently. Who shall ever separate us from his love? As though to say no one. Well, there's only one thing left to do, and that is to express our complete confidence in this truth, as Paul will do, and as we will consider in the next sermon. For I am persuaded, he concludes, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us come to the table.